Good morning, everybody. Uh, glad you're here. We, here we go. 2018. Is that a weird year for you? I'm uh, like, wow, I remember when I thought 2000 was a big deal. So very cool. We're starting off a new year. You never know what a new year is going to bring. We are beginning uh, to, we're going to do a study in the book of James. All right. Uh, we've not been in a book for a while. And James is a book that we have not been through uh, corporately together. A lot of us have read it done different things, but we've not gone. And we're calling it Shoe Leather Wisdom. James is a really practical book. And uh, so we're going to just uh, go through it. Uh, and, and season, here's uh, kind of the, uh, here's how it's going to work. Today, we're, the, the title is on steadfastness, and we'll get to that in just a second. But um, here's the spring calendar. You can see where we're going, and I'll just flip through these so you can uh, see, uh, and I'll tell you already right now, we're going to have to amend this, right? Because we're already behind. I got through two verses um, this week. So I was supposed to get through 18 of them. So we're in trouble. So this will get refreshed, all right? But roughly speaking, we'll take this to Easter and, uh, and, and maybe a little bit beyond, all right? is where we'll go with it. But we'll spend the, the spring here in the book of James. As uh, Rob said, if you go on Right Now Media, uh, community groups, this would be a great thing if you're looking for something and, and to pick up going into the first of the year. Uh, Francis Chan, great, I get to go against Francis Chan. Let's do that and we'll vote at the end who's better, all right? Um, <laughs> okay, so, uh, but uh, it is something that you can use uh, along with the series and get a lot out of it, so we'd encourage you to be able to do that as well. All right. One of the things that uh, is important whenever you look at a book of the Bible is to know a little bit about the background of it. Uh, Especially in the book of James, context is everything. That's true for most of the books of the Bible, but especially in James, the background context really uh, makes a big difference. So... When we come to the book of James, a couple things that uh, matter quite a bit. First of all, when we're talking about James, there's a number of different Jameses in the New Testament. So, for example, there's James and John, the two brothers, the sons of Zebedee. And there's James, son of Alphaeus. And, uh, and then there's a lot of question as to who all these different Jameses are. But if you'd spend some time and you just look, you'll find out that James was the actual half-brother of Jesus. Uh, if you remember the Christmas story, we just got out of it. It says that um, the angel came and talked to Joseph about Mary, that he was to take her as his wife, and that the child that she was pregnant with was from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and Jesus, being a much more righteous man than me, said, okay, I buy it. And, uh, and it says that he did not know her till after Jesus was born, which means they did not make love together until after Jesus was born. Then scripture records that um, he had brothers and sisters. One of those brothers was a guy named James. And so this is, the epistle comes from this James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was known as James the Just. Now, it's funny reading this because uh, what we would consider like holy and, and what they would consider holy are kind of different things in different eras. So, for example, he was considered uh, very holy because he never took a bath, never took a shower. 
And that was a sign of holiness and purity. And I was like, that would really not go over too well today, right? So, but besides those kind of cultural difference things, he had extraordinary character. Uh, he was known as a very, very righteous man and, uh, and lived an incredibly moral life. He was also the first leader of the Church of Jerusalem. So you had three major leaders in the early church. You had Peter, you had uh, John, uh, not James's brother, John, the disciple Jesus loved, and then you have this James, his half-brother. The other leader of the early church was the Apostle Paul. We'll talk about him in just a second because he factors into the book of James. But um, James actually emerged as the leader of the church. So when you read the first couple chapters of Acts and see all that thing, all that stuff going on, James was one of the guys that rose to the top and became the leader of the early church. He also chaired the first church council. Uh, those became famous later on in history, but the very first one, if you remember, uh, they came and the question was, what do we do with the Gentiles? And what are they required to do? And Paul and Barnabas came back and reported of their trips, their missionary trip and what they had experienced and what the Holy Spirit had done. And they came back and then if you remember, they, James said, I think these four things and they sent a letter out and uh, he was the author of that first letter and uh, headed up and chaired the first church council. He was also martyred for his faith. Uh, he lived in Jerusalem for 30 years and they did a, um, a setup on him. They wanted to catch him in uh, his love for Jesus. And so they had him speak at the temple. And when he spoke, they uh, yelled blasphemy. And then they threw him off the pinnacle and he landed on the ground. He didn't die from the fall. Don't know how high it was, but he didn't die from the fall. And so history records that one of the men that was... Uh, persecuting him, took a fuller's club, which is a, a big club that they used to beat clothes back in that day when they were washing him, and bashed him over the head with him and killed him. So he died a very ignominious, terrible, awful death. All right? Um, and so that is who James is. Now, a little bit on the background of the church is also really important. If you look at the if you know a little bit about church history here, if you remember Peter preached that sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 people came to Christ in one shot, right? A little bit of a setup. People knew what had happened on the cross. They knew about the resurrection. They knew something was up and they had watched Jesus for years. Many had hoped he'd be the Messiah. And when the resurrection came around, boom, they filed in big time because they, they responded. And so there were some big explosive steps that happened with the, the early church. And right after that, the church experiences persecution. Uh, Stephen, one of the um, deacons in the church, uh, a very uh, godly guy, um, goes before the leaders and they don't like what he's saying. And so they says literally they gnash their teeth at him, Right? Have you ever had somebody gnash their teeth at you? It's an intense experience. And uh, they literally gnash their teeth and it says they plugged their ears and grabbed them and ran out of the temple and then they stoned uh, Stephen. 
At that moment, it says, a great persecution arose within the church. And so this persecution arose, and as a result, many of the people who formed the church were scattered out uh, throughout the area um, in, um, along the coastline, basically, uh, was the first persecution. James is written to Jewish Christians before the Gentile inclusion. You'll see this in just a minute. Uh, this is before Paul, right? So there are no Gentiles. The only Gentile on the scene that shows up is Cornelius in the book of Acts with Peter. And they don't quite know what to do with Cornelius. And they didn't realize the Gentiles were going to be included. Thank heavens we were. All right. But um, that was part of it. And then, as I said, the church is scattered out along the eastern Mediterranean seaboard because of the persecution. So that's where churches like Antioch and those kind of things come into play here and how they got started because people literally had to flee for their lives uh, in the process of doing this. James, still in Jerusalem, is still in charge of the church. So he's not only trying to take care of the church in Jerusalem, but he's also trying to still take care of his parishioners that are now scattered out along the Mediterranean seaboard. And so this epistle, the book of James, the epistle of James, is written uh, during this time. James was written about A.D. 50, which means that it is probably one of the, if not the, earliest book written of the New Testament. So this book was written actually before the Gospels were written. This book was written actually before all of Paul's epistles were written. It's one, they think it is possibly the first one written in the New Testament. So it it holds a very unique place uh, in, in Scripture and in history that way. So with that background then, let's pray. And then we'll start taking a look at the book of James. Father, thank you for uh, this book. I know in my life it's, it's made a huge impact. Um, and it, it has had significant bearing on your ability to catch my attention. And uh, Lord, we've never gone through it corporately here. So as, as because of those things, we would seek you and ask that you would have a field day with us and have a, a, a lot of fun with your spirit, provoking points, bringing out things that we never saw before, reinforcing things we already knew, uh, timing things with divine timing uh, for a time such as this, and, uh, and all of those things that only you can do. We seek you uh, for that as we begin the series, and we'll look to you all the way through, and we ask for this in your name. Amen. All right. All right, so let's start. I'm using the ESV version uh, of the Bible. And uh, there we go. So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greeting. All right, so let's just start with James, a servant of God. Servant here, the word uses doulos. And doulos meant one who is freely or willingly under the authority of another. Um, the picture of this is found in Exodus. It actually was um, pre-shadowed in the Old Testament in Exodus 21. And there are rules, and it says in Exodus 21, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Uh, when you buy a Hebrew slave, Hebrew slave, he will serve six years. 
And in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But then it says this, and we'll put it up here for... Oops, there we go. Oops, sorry, there we go. Get, get caught up here. It says this, But if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. We call this piercing. All right? Gals, you do this willingly. Most of us guys are smarter than that. All right? Because it hurts. But he were to take the ear, put it on the doorpost, and, and pierce the ear, they would put a ring in it, and it would say, I am the doulos, I am under, this is my chosen master. I, I've chosen to stay with him. I've chosen to live under his roof. And he is my protector and provider. That is the tone that James is using. Now, that's really interesting um, with James. Uh, we'll look at it in just a second here. One note on the 12 tribes. Note, uh, I said the early orientation here. Uh, this is a Jewish book to Jewish believers. Those who have been scattered from Jerusalem. And it's hard for us to catch the enormity of what this meant. Um, we don't understand that simply because we're not Jewish. But what it took to be a, a Jew and to then become a Jewish Christian was revolutionary and heretical and all kinds of things to the point where people killed each other over it. Um, we have tensions like that in our country today. We call the United States of America. I'm not so sure we're so united, right? Um, there's a lot of pressures over ideas in our culture right now. And it was that same explosive, volatile kind of thing that they experienced. And it was in this framework, this mix, that these people became believers. Although they were already believers in Jehovah, they became believers in Yeshua or, or Jesus, as we would say. And so when uh, James is talking here, he's talking about the 12 tribes that are... Um, been dispersed. So this is now, he's identifying when this happened. This happened after, after the dispersion. But here's a little insight why this is so fascinating when he says, um, uh, James, a servant of God. If you remember, if you go back, um, insight into James' life, if you remember, you go back, the first thing we pick up was, do you remember his family got a little worried about Jesus? He was doing and saying some things that were causing problems in the neighborhood. I don't know if you grew up in a small town, but all you need is one person to start talking and not talking like the rest of the people, and then the whole town goes nuts, and the whole town was going crazy. And so Jesus' family said they came to rescue him um, because they thought he had lost his mind. That's the actual wording in Scripture. They thought he was crazy, like our oldest son has lost it. And we better go rescue him before harm comes to him is the actual tone and intent of that. And so Jesus' family was not really bought in to this whole deal, right? 
They took it for a ways, right? There's the wedding in Cana and Mary got that Jesus could do some things. But when he started taking it farther than they had bandwidth for, they went, whoa, dude, he's lost it. And, and so like any good family, you're going to go rein him in, right? Let's go get him. We'll take him home. Let him sleep for a while. Wake him up. Talk some sense into him. Maybe he'll be better. That's kind of the tone of that. Uh, secondly, we know as brothers, they mocked him about revealing himself to the world. They said to him, hey, uh, we would, this is how we'd say it in English. Okay, Mr. Big Britches, you're such hot stuff. Why don't you go you know, to the temple and show them who you really are? And, and you could tell they didn't buy into it. They were like mocking him. And Jesus says, no, your time is any time because you can show up whenever you want. My time has not yet come. And so I can't yet go. And, and so, but then Jesus later secretly came and went and a whole bunch of things happened there. But his brothers mocked him. I know that would never happen today. But, right? You know how that works, right? Younger ones, if you can get a cheap shot in at older brother, that's a, that's a good deal, right? And so that was kind of how they were going after, after him. And then a change happens. The death on the cross, the resurrection. And what we find is that uh, in Acts, we find that it says that the apostles and a, a crowd of about 120 were praying together. And in that 120 included uh, Jesus' brothers. They had shifted. They had a radical turn about their own brother and who they thought he was. And, and so we find him now in Acts 1, 12 and 14... They are with the apostles in the upper room praying uh, on the day that we would now know or called as Pentecost. Right? And then, as I mentioned, he becomes the leader of the newly formed church in Jerusalem. You find this in Acts 15. So James has gone through a radical transformation himself. He's gone, uh, we see a complete turnaround from a full skeptic to that, not just of a believer, but a bondservant in the Lord Jesus. James says, I am under my brother, literally. Think about what that would meant for him. How weird that would have been. Right? Oh yeah, my brother's God. Right? We, we just don't get that. We, it's, we, it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, he got one over. Think about how the enormity of the shift that it would have taken for a person like James to become a believer. You know, if it's true that a prophet's without honor uh, in his hometown, uh, the people, isn't it true the people hardest for us to reach are those closest to us, our family? James is a significant, significant uh, exception here. He went from all out to all in. All right? And as one who's all in, he now addresses those who are also all in but have experienced the devastation of exile and persecution. So James is talking to a group of people that are upside down. They've lost everything. They have fled for their lives. They are trying to find new towns and places to land. They're taking their trades. They're taking their stuff. Some of them had to leave even without their stuff. And they have been through significant trauma. We would call this PTSD today. All right? Capitalized, underlined, exclamation point. Okay? They are quite literally upside down because of and for the sake of Christ. This is what happened as they professed Christ. It went upside down. 
And it's in this context, then, that James says these very famous words that we all cringe at, count it all joy, right? Be full of joy, count it all joy, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. NIV says it this way, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance and steadfast, very close kindred words. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Steadfastness slash perseverance is the ability to hang in there for the long haul despite difficulties and obstacles you might face. And this really is pretty simple. I mean, we don't have to think too long on this. How many of you have faced obstacles and difficulties you never thought you'd face back when you first accepted Jesus? Would you have had any way to predict back when you first asked Christ in life the stuff you've gone through? Would you have any ability to predict the stuff you still have to go through? No. Okay, so perseverance or steadfastness is that key place right there. I know when I accepted Jesus up to now, I know what I've had to go through. Wow, I would have never anticipated that kind of stuff. I'm just looking around the room. I know your stories. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, right? Perseverance and steadfastness is this part that says, okay, I never could have predicted this. I can't predict this either. From here to there, what that's going to be. And steadfastness and perseverance says, you know what? He brought me this far. He'll take me there as well. And I'm going to hang in there. Whatever the cost, I'm going to stay with it. That's what perseverance and steadfastness is. I'm going to finish well. Most of us start well. We don't, by human tendency, usually finish well. We have a capacity to usually uh, kind of quit halfway or three-quarters of the way through, right? Because it just gets to be overwhelming or, or daunting. And so we have a tendency not to be able to complete. So to be steadfast and perseveres means you need more than just pure willpower. You need patience. Anybody recognize that life lesson? Right? Mature means that you've grown in your character in the Christian life. And complete means you've developed skill in the Christian life. All right, so when it says you may be mature and complete, one says that you look like Jesus, and the other is you have the skills of Jesus. Those are not easy to come by. So going back to this, it says... Let me get back to the ESV version here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A couple uh, fun things to do with passages like this is just look up the words and kind of do a word study on them. Um, It's significantly easier to do today than it was years ago. But if you look up trials... The Greek word there is periosmos. It says things that put a person to a test, either externally, persecution, or internally, like, for example, temptation. Right? So things that put you through a trial. 
Have you ever faced any trials internally or externally? That's what it's talking about. All joy, the Greek word there is pashan, sharan, means full or complete joy. Uh, means fully embrace, like yahoo, like alleluia, like uh, all in. Okay? Uh, so as you're going through the trials, it says count it, count it complete joy when you have to go through trials for Christ. Is that the natural human response? No. What's the natural human response? Wine. Wine. Yes, thank you, Dean. Right? Complain and grumble. Right? Just, Jesus really loved me. Right? Um, This is instructing us that we have to respond differently. Meet or face, I thought this was interesting. Uh, When it talks about the word meet, or, or when you face trials of many kinds. Uh, the word there is peripaceti, and it means speaks of falling into the midst of. Like, uh, you remember in McDonald's, they used to have those ball pits, right? And you'd see kids, they'd land, and they'd just launch and flop right into them, right? That's the idea here. As you fall into, things you fall into, like in the midst of people or objects or circumstances. So as you meet, as you face, as you fall into these circumstances. One of the things uh, that you realize if you're, you get past 40 is before 40, you think you pick everything in life. After 40, you realize there's things that pick you. Okay? And you are not sovereign in what picks you. It's sovereign over you. And you will meet or face some things you would never volunteer for. You would never stand in line and say, Oh, yes, choose me, choose me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. No, 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 pick, pick them, pick Walt, he's been, yeah, mess Walt up, don't mess me up, right? Um, we wouldn't volunteer for it. It says, so as you meet or face, as you fall into these things, in other words, as you're going through life and you walk into them, is the idea. And then various, if you look up the word various, poikoloios, uh, means many, or I like the word here, variegated. In other words, it means different shapes and forms and levels. It's not all the same. They don't all hit you the same way. They don't all come at you the same way. They come at different angles and different depths and different layers uh, kind of thing. So uh, if you paraphrased uh, a version of these two verses, it would read like this. When you run into or fall into a bunch of obstacles, whether they're internal or external, and these trials come at you from all kinds of angles and directions. Choose joy. Not because, you're going, not because you like going through the trials, but because you know the Lord is with you and He can and will use them to develop and complete your character in Christ. And if you become Christ-like, you will be complete, refined and holy, not lacking in anything concerning the kingdom. Let me read that again. Stop for a second. Where are you in life right now? Let me read that to you again. When you run into or fall into a bunch of obstacles, whether they're internal or external, and these trials come at you from all kinds of angles and directions, choose joy. Not because you like going through the trials, but because you know that the Lord is with you and He can and will use them to develop and complete your character in Christ. And if you become Christ-like, you will be complete, refined, and holy, 
not lacking in anything concerning the kingdom. Now again, remember, who's the audience is? Who's the audience? What's the timing in history when James writes this? Do you remember the main driver of this whole who the main driver of this whole episode is? What the setting is? We said it was at the stoning of Stephen. And it says in Acts chapter 7 that they cast lots for him, Stephen. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you go farther in Acts in chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of the execution. In other words, he was all for it. He was cheerleading it. Do it. Do it. Do it. He was not an innocent bystander. He was engaged. It says there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul's own testimony on the steps of the barracks in Jerusalem a number of years later was, I persecuted this way to the death. Paul literally killed people over the faith. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. What does ravaging mean? I'm reading right now a book on Ulysses S. Grant and rereading the Civil War and the countryside and how it was ravaged by warfare. Ravaged means uh, to cause severe and extensive damage. Uh, irreparable would be the word. You can't come back from it. And James is writing this book, these words, to a group of people who've been ravished. They have been annihilated. They have been wiped out. They have experienced and know what suffering is. James doesn't have to tell them that suffering is part of the package in claiming allegiance to Christ They've already experienced it. He's not telling them something they don't know. He's telling them something they do know. And in this context, then, he's coaching them. He's coaching them in the long view. Choose joy. Not because what you went through is good. Nobody would call that good. But he says, choose joy. For if you suffer for Christ, you are proving out to be a true son or daughter of Christ again. And I think it's important for us to understand that context. Let's rehearse again for ourselves what Scripture clearly teaches us about suffering. And we're going to use this to walk into communion together. All right? So, if you look at Romans 8, right? Great passage. We quote a lot of Romans 8 all the time. But it says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Awesome! Right? We usually stop right there. But if you read the rest of it, it says, Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We were never guaranteed the American 
uh, picture of you accept Jesus. Jesus loves you. He will protect you from every possible harm that will come your way. You will never be hurt. You will never have to go through suffering. You'll never have to go through persecution. You'll get all the money you want. You'll get all the cars you want. You'll get all the houses you want. You'll get all the vacations you want. And you'll walk into heaven with your go-to-heaven card. AAR approved. Walk in. Thank you very much. It was great serving you. Now what's next? That's kind of the American Christian version of Christianity, right? That's really not the picture that's laid out in Scripture. The picture laid out in Scripture is that if we're going to reign with Christ, we also have to be willing to suffer with Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Did Paul ever get out of it during his lifetime? He never did, did he? If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. Thessalonians is also written to a book of people who went through massive persecution. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And then 1 Peter chapter 2. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. He says, you know, if you're a knucklehead and you're the idiot that got hit with the bat, but you gave them the bat to hit you with because you were doing wrong things and you sinned and then you got punished, and then you said, oh, I'm enduring. Peter's going, what, what, does that make sense? He's going, no. But then he goes on to say, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, endure is the same word as persevere, is the same word as steadfast. Right? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And with that in mind, and we're talking about the gracious thing before God, I'd like to call the guys forward to do communion this morning. When you take communion, what do you think of? Most of the time we think of being in great relationship with the Lord, that he's promised to always be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. We think of pictures of how he atoned for sin, and all those are correct, all those are right, they're all part of the picture. But what was the setting, what was the context of the Last Supper? Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to share this with you before I suffer. Jesus knew what he was going to go through and he knew the picture he was establishing and he wanted to set the table for them so that they would have the picture of suffering. And it was in that context that they took and had the first communion. And we often take communion with the perspective 
or the paradigm, looking at it from Jesus' side, that we remember Jesus' suffering, which is right and true. But we have to recognize that that's also a mirror. And when we look in the mirror, we look back and we realize that Jesus is saying, as I have suffered, so you also will suffer. But be of good cheer, for I will always be with you. And one of the things we can't do is take out parts that we don't like and just keep the parts we do like. Does your definition of Christianity include the part that because you believed in Him, you also get to suffer for Him? We've been marvelously spared in this country so far. Right? But might there come a day when we would be like these people in James? That we might be dispersed? That we might be ravaged? It's entirely possible. And it's in that context that Jesus says, as he looks, and he holds up two things, bread and wine. He says, will you be my follower? He's saying this to the disciples. Remember, Peter said, I'll even be willing to die with you, Lord, in this very context. He says, this is my body, What did that include? Suffering. This is my body. It says, which is broken for you. Do this in memory of me. Then it says he took the cup, symbol of his shed blood. Hebrews tells us we have not yet come to the point of shedding our blood for the sake of Christ. We may have to. Brothers and sisters around the world, are right now at this moment while we are here they've shed their blood for Christ he said drink this in memory of me I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come up and I want you to think about this as they come up in Mark Jesus said the central issue of the cross If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What is the cross? The cross is an instrument of suffering. Most of our goal is how to get out of suffering. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think there's anything. We're not talking about being sadistic or anything. But you also realize there are places in life you can't get out of. That suffering becomes a part of the fabric that you have to go through. Many in this room, as I'm looking across the room, have experienced that fabric of suffering. We have learned what it's like to carry our cross. First Peter 4 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That even if we are facing injustice, even if we're facing suffering, we are to entrust our souls because we are suffering according to God's will. Let's go back to the main verse. Read it again. Count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And the lesson is located right in the history lesson, right here. Who ravaged the church? Saul, right? These very Christians we're talking about were thrown in jail. Some of them murdered. They were ripped right out of their homes and tortured and persecuted by a guy named Saul. He was the great enemy of the church. He was the great Satan of the day. He was the Nero of the day. Why would James, how could James possibly be vindicated in this when that kind of suffering has happened? Well, it turns out the very people that got persecuted by Saul left such an impact on them that that Saul later became a guy we know as the Apostle Paul. Why should you count it joy when you encounter various trials. I want to suggest this this morning. Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe your persecutor might turn out to be the next Apostle Paul? Let's pray. Sobered by that, Lord. Thank you for that punchline. You gave it to me and I think it's deadly accurate. We can't see the whole picture. We don't know the whole story. We are very limited in our scope and often we judge according to what we see but we don't judge according to what you know. Give us a heart to trust you even in the midst of suffering. We ask this in your name. Amen.